You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, you're all very, very welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is our research institute for the arts and humanities. Um, we do three things in here. So for those of you who haven't been in before, uh, we celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities at Trinity, we promote multi and interdisciplinarity, and we have a public humanities programme. And this lecture series, um, which is picked up a flyer outside, at Utopia Dystopia, the Russian Revolution 100 years on, is very much a part of that uh, uh, public humanities uh, programme. Uh, those of you who were here last week for the first event was just tremendous. It couldn't have gone better. Uh, and it's lovely to welcome James Ryan here this evening to give the first of a whole series of lectures that actually go on until, my goodness, the last one's in March. So you're, you're kicking off um, uh, the series uh, uh, this evening, James, and it's lovely to welcome you here. Um, apart from to say that you're all very welcome uh, and hopefully we'll see you at all of the events, I am simply going to hand over the chair uh, to my colleague uh, Balaj Apoor. But before I do that, there's a couple of things I just want to draw to your attention. One is that there's a big Connor Cruz um, O'Brien seminar going on and those of you who are feeling particularly committed and enthusiastic are more than welcome to go from this event to that event. It's like bring a party to a party. Um, the Connor uh, Cruz O'Brien events over in the Burke uh, immediately after this one. Um, then simply to make sure that you do come back uh, next uh, uh, 6th of December um, uh, for Stephen Smith from Oxford who is speaking. And then to invite you to uh, behind the headlines that we're having here on Monday evening on uh, freedom of speech. And then we've also got a big symposium next week uh, on fake news, fear and faction, uh, where we have a whole panel of wonderful speakers uh, talking about issues that are very much uh, in the headlines. So without further ado, though, if I could hand over the floor uh, to Balaj, who will chair the event. Thank you. for the kind uh, uh, introduction and it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be able to, to introduce James Ryan uh, to the audience and to, to chair um, this uh, event uh, tonight. I'm very much looking forward to, to the talk and the discussion uh, afterwards. Uh, James uh, is a native of this land. Uh, he's from Cork. He's a graduate of uh, University College Cork. He did his PhD there and he also did his postdoctoral uh, fellowship in, in, in Ireland, that's the Government of Ireland Postdoctoral uh, Fellowship. He's currently based in Cardiff in Wales uh, and he's a, a modern European history lecturer uh, there with a specific focus on, on Russian history. His area of expertise is related to the history of interwar Russia, interwar Soviet Union and, and, and of course the role of violence um, and, and the emerging uh, Soviet state um, in um, uh, more specifically. He is the author of uh, the book Lenin's Terror, The Ideological Origins of Early Soviet State Violence, which was published in uh, 2012. Uh, this, is an, uh, this is a brilliant book, actually. Um, I, um, I, I am a fan of that, to be honest. Uh, this offers a, a monumental but, but extremely sophisticated analysis of the role of violence in Lenin's political thought. So uh, if you want to know everything about, about violence and, and, and Lenin, that's the book that you should uh, buy, of course. Don't go to library, because uh, we need royalties uh, as well. Now he's broadened his, his horizon since then, and he's, um, he's, uh, and he's moved on a little bit um, time-wise as well, and he's currently working uh, on an intellectual history of Soviet state violence in the period between 1918 and 19. 41. Um, so James will have about 40, 40, 40 to 50 minutes uh, to talk for and then we will have some time, um, uh, 20 to 30 minutes for, for a discussion. So you're, you're of course uh, invited to, to stay for the discussion uh, as well. And without further ado, i just uh, like to invite James to come up here and take my place. Thanks, Bob.
thank you very much for your very kind words. Too kind, in fact. And can I just confirm that you can all hear me? Yes? Great, thank you. Well, good evening and thank you all for coming. Um, my very great thanks to the Long Room Hub for the invitation to speak this evening. And my particular thanks to my friend Orissia Kulik for suggesting me as a speaker um, for this series. It is a great pleasure to be here. On the 15th of July 2018, over 80,000 soccer fans will descend on Moscow's Lutniki Stadium for the World Cup final. As they approach the recently renovated beautiful old Olympic Stadium, they cannot but be struck by the sight of a large statue of Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. Oh, and here it is. Few will struggle to recognise the man depicted in the statue, and few will be entirely surprised at its sight. Lenin's image is ubiquitous in Russia, unlike, for example, in neighbouring Ukraine, where it seems no statue or almost no statue of Lenin remains standing in the former Soviet Republic. In Russia, almost every city and town has a Lenin street and a Lenin statue. In Moscow, the metro still bears his name, and several of the metro stations contain murals and busts of his head. His embalmed body still lies on display in the centre of the city. And as I was walking around Moscow two months ago in September, I found the image of Lenin as striking, as arresting, as it was when I first visited Russia over a decade ago. When I visited this year, it was just a few weeks after the tragic events in Charlottesville in North Carolina this summer had drawn our attention once again to the contentious issue of historical statues. And that's something that we might talk about a little bit later on. But as I looked at the image of Lenin in Moscow, and as I thought about the lecture this evening, I became aware of another thought. Despite his status as a towering figure in modern history, Lenin had lived most of his life in relative obscurity. Few people in Russia had heard of him at the beginning of 1917. And when he came to power in Russia later that year, he had less than seven years to live. In fact, there is a story that Lenin returned to the Kremlin in Moscow one day in 1918, but without his identification papers. Of course, this was uh, in the days before widespread photography, and the guard on duty didn't recognize him and initially refused to let him in. Lenin's journey into the textbooks of modern history was quite literally extraordinary. On the 9th of April 1917, a group of Russian revolutionaries headed by Lenin boarded a train in Zurich bound for the North German coast, with the famous Seal train. It was a train journey that, in the words of historian Catherine Merrydale, changed the world. The journey was risky for several reasons, through wartime Europe, through enemy territory. But a week later, they arrived at the Finland station in Petrograd, or St. Petersburg, um, which was called Petrograd during the First World War. Seven months later, this group of, re of revolutionaries had helped to overthrow, they had in fact overthrown the government in the Russian capital, and they had set about trying to establish a new type of political power, not just in Russia, but throughout the world. This year, of course, marks 100 years since the revolutions of 1917 in Russia. And there were two political revolutions in Russia that year, the February Revolution and the October Revolution, and both are typically referred to by the singular term, the Russian Revolution. And that term should be understood to represent a process of political, economic, social and cultural um, reforms, and sorry, not reforms, revolution, um, that did not end in 1917. The first revolution, in February-March, resulted in the abdication of Tsar Nicholas II and the creation of a provisional government. The second, in October-November, resulted in the seizure of power by the Communist Bolshevik Party, led by Lenin, in the name of the Soviets, the Soviets being the councils of workers, soldiers and peasants' deputies that had first appeared in Russia in 1905. These revolutions were events and processes of enormous consequence that have shaped the world in which we live today in myriad ways. As you may have observed, the centenary of 1917 is generating a lot of interest in many parts of the world, in the media, in public exhibitions, and in academia. 
For historians of the Russian Revolution, the centenary provides opportunities for us to think more deeply about it and its consequences, its legacy, to take stock of what we know about the revolution and approaches to writing it, and to reach a broader audience than we might be accustomed to. And the, the invitation to give this lecture has provided me with, me with a very welcome opportunity to think more deeply about Lenin and Leninism than I have done for some time, in fact, since the publication of my book. And so I very much hope that you find the lecture this evening interesting. And I think in a lecture on Lenin and Leninism during this centenary year, my task really is very simple. Don't make an interesting topic seem dull. And I hope that I achieved that. I also hope that we can open up to a good discussion afterwards. The lecture will be divided into three parts. The first part will be an expanded introduction. And in this, I would like to touch on a variety of different issues. This section will touch on the historic importance of Lenin, and to my mind, perhaps the key question that we should ask when we think about the October Revolution specifically, and that is, what was the October Revolution actually for? Why did the Bolsheviks take power? The second part of the lecture will be devoted to the question, what is Leninism? I want to avoid a long discussion of Leninist theory, and so this will be a relatively condensed overview. And we can adopt a simple understanding of Leninism as Marxist thought, developed by Lenin in the 20th century, and as the ideological foundation of the Soviet state. We will also see that Leninism, like any ideology, like any piece of intellectual history, should be understood diachronically, that is, as a body of thought that developed over time in response to various um, circumstances, changing circumstances, in Russia and in Europe more broadly, as we will see. And the third and final part of the lecture will examine the question whether or not Leninism is still relevant in the sense of its, its usefulness, its relevance for addressing some of today's national and global issues. The ways in which the Russian Revolution is being commemorated in the English-speaking world and in Russia, by specialists and by non-specialists, suggests a good deal of complexity, diversity, and multiplicity. If we look specifically at the academic community, then we see this multiplicity reflected in recent publications that seek to capture what the revolution meant, that is, what it meant to different political parties and what it meant to political and social elites, and what it meant to so-called ordinary people. We find discussion of the problems associated with speaking about particular groups of ordinary people, such as peasants, without acknowledging the diversity of peasant experiences. We can detect in recent scholarship the importance of approaching the meanings of the revolution from the perspectives of gender and generational differences. We read and hear frequently now about the importance of examining the revolution outside of the major cities, Moscow, St. Petersburg and in areas of the Russian Empire inhabited predominantly by non-Russian ethnicity. And this allows us to appreciate that the relationship between the political centre and the peripheries was complex, and that power did not simply flow from the top to the bottom. We have also seen much discussion about the complexity of the crucial period of the revolution itself. Historians, whether Russian or Western, are now largely agreed that the revolution was not just about 1917, and that 1917 and its significance should be placed within the context of the larger continuum of crisis that Russia faced from the onset of war in 1914, and that lasted at least into the 1920s, if not the 1930s. Of the major books on the revolution published this year in English, Mark Steinberg's excellent book is most explicitly foregrounded in the search for giving expression to this theme of the diversity and multiplicity of popular experiences. And I have no criticism to make of that approach. I also have no criticism to make of Steve Smith, um, who will be speaking here in a couple of weeks. In his wonderfully comprehensive book on the revolution published earlier this year, where he writes, as you can see here, I hope, Revolutions are not created by revolutionaries. 
that is revolutionary leaders, people like Lenin, who at most helped to erode the legitimacy of the existing regime by suggesting that a better world is possible. Smith's point is that revolutions occur during times of deep crisis in the existing order, and they occur through popular action. And the role of revolutionaries is to direct that action. I am not going to suggest this evening by contrast that Lenin and other revolutionaries somehow made the Russian Revolution. However, my lecture is premised on the assertion that we should be careful not to render the centre peripheral to the story of the revolution, and we should be careful not to adopt an overly romanticised conception of revolutions as festivals of the oppressed, to use Lenin's own description of revolution. The October Revolution was a major turning point in world history, and the course that the Russian Revolution more generally took was determined above all by Lenin and his ruling Bolshevik party, often by mobilising the people, the so-called, in, in Russian, the narrow, but often also by force against them. The Russian historian Yelena Katelyenets has asserted that in this revolutionary, in the centenary year, Lenin is, or at least should be, considered perhaps the central figure in world history. Well, we should certainly accord Lenin the man, and Leninism, the ideology, central places in our centenary discussions. And I think that is the, the premise of my lecture this evening. I'm more concerned with Lenin's political thought than with Lenin the man. <coughs> However, Lenin is one of the most significant figures in modern history, and I think it is important to have some knowledge of his life. So I'll give you a very brief overview. He was born Vladimir Ilyich Yulianov in April 1870 in the town of Simbirsk, which is now Yulianovsk, on the Volga River in the European part of Russia. <coughs> when Vladimir was 17, his brother, um, his brother was executed for involvement in a plot to kill the Tsar, Alexander III. A brilliant student, Vladimir trained as a lawyer but soon he became a Marxist and absorbed by revolution. Like many Russian revolutionaries, he adopted various pseudonyms, becoming known as Lenin, and he spent a good portion of his life in exile abroad. He was a leading figure in Russian Marxist circles and the head of a faction known as the Bolsheviks, the Bolsheviki. Following his return to Russia in 1917, after the February Revolution, after the overthrow of the Tsarist system. Lenin steered the Bolsheviks to a seizure of power, and then he oversaw the newly founded Soviet state through its very difficult infancy. He suffered his first stroke in May 1922, and by 1923 he had retired from active politics. He died in January 1924 at only 53 years old. My talk this evening operates in part on the premise that the Lenin factor, that is, the role of personality, matters a great deal in the story of the Russian Revolution. However, it will also be necessary to avoid exaggerating this role. In 1935, Lev Trotsky, one of the Bolshevik leaders in the autumn of 1917, wrote in his diary that if neither Lenin nor I had been present in Petersburg, there would have been no October Revolution. The leadership of the Bolshevik Party would have prevented it from occurring. Of this, I have not the slightest doubt. And this has become a standard view of the October Revolution. But Trotsky undoubtedly exaggerated the significance of Lenin and indeed himself in 1917, and the extent to which they had to convince their own party to take power. In fact, it seems that in autumn 1917, Russia was going to become a socialist Soviet country anyway, at least temporarily. That is because the second All-Russian Congress of Soviets, which was scheduled to meet the day after the Bolsheviks moved to take power, this Congress was due to vote in favour of forming a government of exclusively socialist ministers, based on the authority of the Soviet Congress. I think the significance of Lenin and Trotsky in the October Revolution was less the creation of Soviet power than the nature of that power. 
Lenin wanted power seized before the Congress met in order to try to avoid coalition with more moderate socialists. Even after the seizure of power, there were good chances for more moderate socialists and more moderate Bolsheviks to forge a coalition government that is a coalition socialist government within the structure of the Soviets. And this would rule until a democratically elected parliament, a constituent assembly, would meet. However, the hardline Bolsheviks led by Lenin and Trotsky managed to ensure that there would be no place for moderate socialists in government and that Soviet power would not be compromised by a parliamentary democracy, or compromised as they saw it. Lenin has always been a controversial figure, even among his comrades in Russian Marxist circles. For some, Lenin was merciless and cruel, for some scholars and for, for others. Deserving to be placed alongside Stalin and Hitler in a triumvirate of brutal 20th century dictators. For others, mainly on the political far left, Lenin might not exactly be revered, but he is usually held in high regard and typically counterposed to Stalin's later alleged distortions of Leninism. Lenin is indelibly associated with 1917 and the Russian Revolution, and one's views of him tend to be determined by whether one thinks of October 1917 primarily as a moment of revolutionary emancipation or as the prelude to a violent and dictatorial regime associated with the Gulag and the Cold War. But to think of the revolution as both, and to recognize the complex and contradictory character of the revolution, will help us to arrive at a suitably complex and contradictory image of Lenin, and and of Leninism. And this leads us to address what I think is an essential core question, not just for assessing Leninism, but for thinking about the Russian Revolution as a whole. That is the question that I posed uh, at the very beginning. What was the October Revolution actually for? Why did the Bolsheviks take power? We cannot answer that question adequately without first acknowledging that Lenin was absolutely committed to the triumph of his political cause, and the same goes for the Bolshevik leadership as a whole. And their cause was the establishment of socialism and later communism around the world. Lenin and the Bolshevik leaders were supremely theoretical politicians. They were not above opportunism and cunning. They were not above lies and brutality. But they were motivated more by theoretical vision than by personal interest. The problem, though, is that this is far from being an accepted view. For example, the most recent book on Lenin in English, published this year, is by the writer Victor Sebastian, with the title Lenin the Dictator. Written for a wide audience, I've seen it on very prominent display in good bookshops. This is an image that I took earlier this year in Heffer's bookshop in Cambridge, a very good bookshop. Um, And Sebastian's book is the one second shelf from the top that just has has an image of Lenin on the cover. And a few weeks before I took this picture, I saw in the same bookshop, I saw a table um, on the floor of the the, the shop uh, devoted to promoting this book. So I'm assuming that it's reached quite a wide readership. Sebastian seems to consider that parallels are evident between Lenin and Donald Trump. So, like Trump, according to Sebastian, In his quest for power, Lenin promised people anything and everything. He lied unashamedly. He identified a scapegoat that he could later label enemies of the people. Lenin was the godfather of what commentators a century later called post-truth politics. Sebastian does acknowledge that Lenin was a communist idealist, but the point is that, as he puts it, When ideology clashed with opportunism, Lenin invariably chose the tactical path above doctrinal purity. And he could change his mind entirely if it advanced his goal. I disagree firmly with Sebastian's premise. In our supposed age of post-truth politics, with many of our politicians (coughs) focused on short-term electoral cycles, 
Lenin should stand in stark contrast, regardless of what we think about his politics. Lenin was convinced of the importance of leading a revolutionary movement rather than merely listening opportunistically to the winds of popular change. Lenin's politics were indeed a politics of truth. And so what was his goal? Well, it was not power for its own sake. It was communism. And communism represents a vision of a perfected society, a society whereby people would live in complete social harmony without any need for coercive instruments of state power, such as a police and a standing army. Communism would bring with it the complete and comprehensive development and realisation of each individual. But unlike liberal capitalism, individuals would only achieve this through collective social means, by ensuring collective harmony. For communism to exist, humanity would need to be improved and transformed. And so, really, the essence of the October Revolution was a cultural revolution. That is, the creation of a new type of person, the creation of a new type of mentality, a new type of culture. This new person, the so-called new... The, the new person, the new Soviet person, uh, the Novi Sovietsky Chalaviek, the new man. Without this new person, communism simply could not, could not exist. And so the October Revolution represented the most ambitious and sustained attempt at human transformation and liberation in modern European history. However, the Soviet regime became the most violent state system in modern peacetime European history. And here we arrive at the complex and contradictory essence of the Russian Revolution and of Soviet history more generally. And to my mind, the great irony, the great paradox of the 20th century. The second part of the lecture will address more directly the question, what is Leninism? The context for the development of Leninism as a body of thought was initially the Russia of Tsarist autocracy, late imperial Russia, where there was little or no space for legal political opposition. And then it was wartime Europe. Our starting point should be 1905. In that year, Russia experienced revolutionary upheaval that lasted into 1907. And the significance of those years for our purposes is that we see Leninism as a distinct version of Marxism come into outline form. We see it as an especially uncompromising and militant version of Marxism, born of the particular circumstances of autocratic Russia, but also of the particular conceptions of Lenin and his close comrades. Lenin was completely convinced that full-blown revolutionary civil war in the form of guerrilla warfare and guerrilla violence and mass insurrections, this would be necessary in Russia in order to ensure a democratic republic with civil liberties. In other words, for Lenin, the creation of a constitutional monarchy would not be enough. There needed to be a complete break with the Tsarist autocratic system, a complete wiping clean of the slate. Revolutions, he declared in 1905, are festivals of the oppressed and the exploited. And the task would be to wage a ruthless and self-sacrificing struggle for the direct and decisive path. Directness and decisiveness were characteristics of Lenin's politics and of his leadership. And revolution, he continued in 1905, is a life and death struggle, a struggle between the old Russia the Russia of slavery, serfdom, and autocracy, and the new, young, people's Russia, the Russia of the toiling masses, who are reaching out towards light and freedom in order afterwards to start once again a struggle for the complete emancipation of mankind from all oppression and all exploitation. Let's look at the second quotation in a little bit more detail. The confusing thing here is what Lenin meant by the need for a new struggle. What does he mean by starting a struggle yet again? 
a revolution after the revolution? Well, Marxist theory suggests that history progresses through various stages, brought about by revolutions. Socialism would evolve into communism, but before socialism, there would be capitalism. Capitalism would be associated with the political form of liberal democracy. So we associate capitalism with liberal democracies. And liberal democracies would allow for the full development of capitalist enterprise. But they would also allow for the political maturation, the maturity of the, of the working masses, of the wider people. And this would be made possible through widening access to education, through the availability of a free press, and through legal channels for political action. Eventually, the contradictions of capitalism would lead to the working masses revolting against capitalist exploitation and taking power themselves under the guidance of socialist parties, like the Russian um, Social Democratic Labour Party, the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. According to this view of Marxist historical stages, Russia was not yet at the stage of, of capitalism. Russia was still quite largely in the stage before that, a sort of um, a feudal autocratic stage. Russia had not yet experienced its first revolution, its democratic revolution, similar to the great French Revolution, a revolution that would sweep away all of the remnants of autocracy. Russia was underdeveloped socially and culturally, and it had few democratic traditions. And so, until 1917, Lenin's objective was that the Russian Revolution would make a decisive break with autocracy, with the absolute control of the Tsar, thereby allowing the full flourishing of democratic liberties, which would allow for a, a, more, a quicker advance to the next, higher revolution, the socialist revolution, that would bring about a socialist system. And socialism eventually would evolve into communism, that perfected society. It was the First World War that brought about revolution in Russia, and it was the war that allowed Leninism as a, as a distinct body of Marxist thought to develop more fully. In 1905, Lenin had assumed that a successful revolution in Russia, as we have seen, would be about establishing democracy and preparing for socialism only in the future. In 1917, Lenin did not think that Russia was developed enough yet for socialism economically. But crucially, what he, said, what he said in 1917 was that Russia was on the threshold of socialism. And so clearly something had changed. Something had changed in his estimation of Russia's revolution and Russia's revolutionary capabilities the nature of the forthcoming Russian Revolution. What had changed is that Lenin realised during the war that Marx's thought was somewhat out of date, because Marx had not lived through the full development of the era of imperialism. Marxism now had to adapt to this new age of imperialism. In developing his views on imperialism from earlier accounts written by economists and socialists, Lenin and many other socialists of the time understood the war as the inevitable consequence of imperialism, and imperialism meaning a more aggressive form of capitalism, a stage of capitalism, a logical, necessary stage of the historic development of capitalism. Imperialism, he reasoned, had resulted from the evident fact that the logic of capitalism's pursuit of profit had driven capitalists and imperial states to conquer overseas colonies in order to exploit natural resources and cheap sources of labour. Rivalries between imperial states for colonies had structured, had determined, had brought about these international tensions that eventually erupted in the War of 1914. And so, the war, according to Lenin, had not resulted from accident or contingency. It resulted from the necessary logic of capitalism. It was an imperialist war. When we look at Lenin's wartime writings and speeches, we see that what he was saying was that capitalism had entered its final stages, 
Capitalism had served its historic function of preparing societies for socialism. But now, in the early 20th century, capitalism had become so violent and repressive that it threatened civilization. Imperialism had inaugurated a whole era of violence. And as he put it, the present war will soon be followed by others. The only solution for humanity, according to Lenin, was socialist revolutions. Socialist revolutions internationally. And during the war, in fact, Lenin had become convinced that the historically necessary moment for socialism, for socialist revolutions, was now or never. And this is the meaning of Lenin's, of one of Lenin's famous expressions in 1917, when urging his party to take power. He said, history will not forgive us if we do not seize power now. <coughs> the war, according to Lenin, had made revolutions imperative, as I've tried to explain. But the war had also made socialism eminently possible, perhaps even relatively straightforward to achieve. Wartime societies, he thought, were pregnant with socialism. The very fact that millions of working people, well, millions of working men, had been conscripted into armies and were fighting a long and brutal war had created the potential for socialist revolutions or some form of revolution. In addition, imperialism had been facilitated um, by the establishment of increasing economic concentration. In fact, the, the onset of economic monopolies. And banks, the banks, had become very central to the functioning of imperialist economies. Economic centralization and state control, state control over the economy, state direction of the economy, were then given a major push by the exigencies, by the demands of waging a war, a total war, and a, an almost unprecedented type of war. And so what Lenin was thinking, what Lenin was saying, was that imperialism had not only made revolutions necessary, it had also made socialism very much possible. Because imperialism had greatly facilitated the creation of rational, state-controlled, but ultimately socialist economies. All that the working classes would need to do to bring about socialism would be to seize control of the state, nationalize the banks, nationalize the large industries, and that would be socialism. And that's effectively what Lenin wrote in 1917. He had a rather simplistic view of how to run an economy, how to bring about a socialist um, revolution and a socialist state. Why is this discussion of Lenin's understanding of imperialism relevant to the Russian Revolution? Well, my students, I think, always ask that question because in my classes we tend to spend the first month of my modules exploring exactly these questions. And students tell me at the end of the year that they really didn't like all of this discussion of Leninist theory. And what I tell them is, if you want to understand the Russian Revolution, if you want to understand the Soviet state, we've got to understand the theory. Because the people we are studying, the Bolsheviks, were very theoretical politicians. Theory was their lifeblood. It was essential to their very identities. But more pointedly, this discussion is relevant because this was the this discussion of imperialism provided the theoretical foundation for the October Revolution and for the particular course that the Russian Revolution would take under Bolshevik control. One of the reasons that the First World War is of central importance to our understanding of modern history is because the war was of central importance to the development of Leninism. Lenin described the war as a mighty accelerator of history, hastening the process by which socialism would be achieved. And he thought that Russia's path to socialism would be much shorter because of the war, and especially when revolutions would break out in the more advanced industrial societies. But due to uneven levels of economic development globally, due to greater prosperity in the more advanced societies, Lenin thought that revolutions were actually likely to break out in the peripheries rather than in the, in the, in the metropolis. So he thought that revolutions would break out in the colonies, or perhaps in Russia. 
and then those revolutions would spread to the more advanced societies. In 1917, re revolution did indeed break out in Russia uh, with the February Revolution. And so this brings us back to Lenin's historic role in 1917. The standard account of this role is that Lenin returned to Russia in April on the sealed train that I mentioned uh, at, at, the, at the beginning. And he surprised his fellow Bolsheviks by proclaiming that there could be no support for the provisional government in Russia and that a socialist revolution was on the immediate agenda. He then managed over the coming months to convince his party of the need to take power in October. So that's the standard view. We now have a more complex picture of Lenin and the Bolsheviks in 1917, thanks in large part to the work of the scholar Lars Lee, um, a Canadian-based scholar. Although Lee's work has not yet found its way into most, uh, into most accounts of 1917. What Lee's work has suggested is that, in fact, Lenin's views in 1917 were largely similar to those of leading Bolsheviks. Bolsheviks as a whole took a consistent and uncompromising stance with regard to the need for complete state power, complete Soviet power rather, rather than continued Soviet support for the provisional government. So very basically, um, in Russia in 1917, a situation arose called, that we refer to as dual power, whereby a provisional government that had come into existence after the overthrow of the Tsar. And it was called provisional because it didn't have a popular mandate. It was holding power until popular elections would take place. This provisional government um, was, was sharing power in a slightly uneasy relationship with the Soviets, that is, the organizations representing the working people, the soldiers, the peasants, and the deputies. And Lenin's consistent slogan in 1917 was which means all power to the Soviets. So what he wanted was for the Soviet structure to realize that it needed to get rid of the provisional government and take all of the power itself, rather than prop up the provisional government. So it seems that Bolsheviks as a whole adopted that position. It seems that the real source of contention within the party was about the extent of Russia's proximity to socialism and about the nature of the coming revolution in Russia as a socialist political revolution. It seems that Lenin's belief that Russia could proceed to transition towards socialism by itself, that is, without revolutions elsewhere, and indeed that Russia was on the threshold of socialism, it seems that this is not something that the party, the Bolsheviks as a whole, were easily sold on. Um, so that they pointed to Russia's relative economic and cultural underdevelopment. And so, once again, the point that I'm making here is that Lenin's historic role in 1917 concerned less the occurrence of a revolution in October and less the creation of a, of a Soviet government, although he certainly played a major role in driving the Bolshevik strategy. But I think what's more important is his role in the nature of that revolution and the subsequent government. Crucially, Lenin was prepared not to share power with, um, with other large socialist parties, something that more moderate Bolsheviks considered inconceivable. The nature of the subsequent Soviet state as a single-party Bolshevik dictatorship, uh, and it was a single-party Bolshevik dictatorship for almost the entirety of its existence, apart from a very brief period between December 1917 and March 1918, when the Bolsheviks shared power with a radical um, party called the Left Socialist Revolutionaries. So the nature of, the, of the, the Soviet state as a single party Bolshevik dictatorship owed much to the ability of Lenin and other hardliners, namely Trotsky, to outmaneuver more moderate Bolsheviks, as well as other socialist parties. However, and this is worth noting, Lenin was not opposed in principle to socialist coalition. Okay, so I hope you find that confusing, because it is kind of confusing. In fact, for much of 1917, when Lenin spoke of all power to the Soviets, he was urging the more moderate socialist leaders of the Soviet and the capital to take complete state power. It was only quite late in 1917 
that the Bolsheviks were becoming very popular within the Soviet structure. It was only in September that they achieved a majority in the major Soviets in Petrograd and Moscow. Before then, it was the slightly more moderate socialist parties, the Mensheviks, the socialist revolutionaries, that, were the, that played the main role within the Soviet structure. And so when Lenin urged all power to the Soviets for most of 1917, in effect what he meant was power primarily to those other parties, with the Bolsheviks as a minority. He was urging the, so the, Soviet, the socialist leaders in the Soviet to take power. So he wasn't opposed in principle to a socialist coalition. The point is, though, that those other parties did not take power. And by September 1917, Lenin had become absolutely convinced that the Bolsheviks, and only the Bolsheviks, were sufficiently steadfast representatives of the people. Only the Bolsheviks could preserve the revolution and drive it forward. The paradox of Leninism is that, as an ideology of popular emancipation and empowerment, it became an ideology of dictatorship and violence. Throughout 1917, Russia's political parties, including the Bolsheviks, expected a parliament elected by universal suffrage, a constituent assembly, to be convened in the near future. And the exact relationship between this parliament and the Soviets wasn't clear in Bolshevik minds. But it appears that even before taking power, Lenin did not see a future for a constituent assembly elected by universal suffrage. This is interesting because Friedrich Engels, Marxist collaborator, had written that proletarian dictatorship, that is one of the names given to socialism, to the existence of socialism, that such a proletarian dictatorship would take the form of a democratic republic. Engels had written that in, I think, 1875. However, in Lenin's major work of political theory in 1917, called The State and Revolution, he corrected Engels. Proletarian dictatorship would not take the form of a democratic republic, he wrote. Rather, it would be formed of the Soviets of working people only. And this is a point that he made very explicitly in his famous April Theses of 1917. Any state, according to Lenin, was simply an instrument of the ruling class in any society. And correspondingly, the proletarian state, the socialist state, the state that represented the interests of the proletariat, meaning the industrial workers, and the working people as a whole. This state, as he put it, would be democratic in a new way, that is, democratic for the proletariat, for the propertyless in general, for the working masses. But it would be dictatorial in a new way as well, that is, directed against the other classes, directed against the bourgeoisie. And so this is why it's so important that Lenin wants a Soviet state. The fact that the, that the actual Soviet state wasn't really based on the Soviets, in actual reality, through its 74 years, the Soviet, states, the Soviet state wasn't really based on that radically democratic Soviet structure. That's less important than the fact that, for Lenin, the Soviets represented democracy only for the working people and not for anybody else. And so the Leninist interpretation of proletarian dictatorship was then more literally dictatorial than many other Marxists would consider justifiable. The narrowness of democracy in Leninist thought alongside the almost necessary relationship in his thought between socialism and the use of violence and repression against the revolution's enemies. These elements would soon become the targets of severe criticism by non-Bolshevik socialists, other socialists, other Marxists, inside and outside Soviet Russia. Within months of the October Revolution, the Leninist enthusiasm for unleashing popular initiative and radical democracy had given way to a more sober appraisal of the difficulties of building a state authority on the remnants of a state that had failed <coughs> during wartime and during an economic crisis. And Lenin now spoke about a lack of discipline, a lack of discipline amongst the Russian people. 
And we see both Leninist thought and Bolshevik rules become noticeably more authoritarian. From the summer of 1918, the Soviet state intensified dramatically its practices of violence and repression. And this was in response to deepening economic difficulties and to a civil war, a brutal civil war, between supporters and opponents of the October Revolution. And all of this was justified in Leninist thought by reference to the better future toward which the revolution would lead. Lenin would not countenance, he would not accept any restrictions or any significant legal checks on the powers of the revolutionary state. As he put it in late 1918, and I'm quoting, I haven't put this in the board because I didn't want to put everything in the board, the revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat is rule that is won and maintained by the use of violence by the proletariat against the bourgeoisie. Rule that is unrestricted by any laws. In actual fact, Lenin's views on law and on violence were more complicated than that. But it's, it's quite a neat um, and quite a, uh, a categorical statement. And that's why I'm using it. However, before he died, Lenin oversaw a significant alteration in the course of the revolution. The new economic policy, NEP, introduced in 1921 in response to major popular unrest with, with Bolshevik policies, NEP suggested a slower and more moderate path to socialism and communism than the course that had been pursued until then. The absolute power and intolerance of Bolshevik party rule remained in force, but in one of Lenin's last writings in 1923, he explained that a radical modification in our whole outlook on socialism was necessary. There needed to be a shift of emphasis, he thought, from political struggle to peaceful, organisational, cultural work. After his death in 1924, Leninism remained the source of legitimacy of the party's rule. But Leninism could mean different things to different people at different times. <coughs> Stalin, when seeking justification for a terrible renewal of full-scale assault on class enemies and for the rapid construction of socialism, Stalin declared in 1929 that destruction of classes by means of, of bitter class struggle of the proletariat, that is Lenin's formula. And he wasn't wrong. However, to a significant extent, Stalin had taken Lenin's thought out of context. He had hollowed out the meaning of Lenin's last writings. And following Stalin's death, the Leninist party remained in power, but the Soviet Union became a less violent and a more open society. The 1961 Communist Party program, under the um, direction of Nikita Khrushchev, the 1961 program stated that the dictatorship of the proletariat was no longer necessary. It was only in the late 1980s and early 1990s when the unquestionable role of Lenin and Leninism, the unquestionable role of Lenin and Leninism as the sources of legitimacy of the Soviet state, when this was undermined, it's only then, and when the party's monopoly on power was revoked by Mikhail Gorbachev, it's then that we see the Soviet experiment come to an end. Okay, I'm coming close to finish. Leninism then is best understood as a historically specific understanding and application of Marxism in order to bring about communism. Leninism and the Soviet state should not be thought of as synonymous with socialism or even with Marxism. Leninism was about communism and the salvation of humanity from itself. It was motivated by very lofty ideals of the complete development of humanity and emancipation from all exploitation and all unnecessary suffering. <coughs> However, it sought to achieve those goals by encouraging class enmity and hatred, by the practice and justification of an enormous amount of repression and violence, and by establishing an extremely authoritarian, more accurately totalitarian, political dictatorship under which millions of people suffered. It was an extremist, absolutist political ideology that allowed almost no room for compromise. And yet compromises were possible. Lenin drove his party to adopt an uncomfortable retreat 
in, in, in the early 1920s with net, with a limited reintroduction of capitalism. Lenin recognized the limits of violence, but the revolution could not survive by force alone. And Lenin would probably have been horrified to witness the later violent consequences of Stalinism. Many Soviet citizens, and indeed many people throughout the world, were genuinely enthused and mobilized by the revolution's rhetoric of empowerment, emancipation, dignity, and a chance to create a new and better life. Leninism, in other words, is a complex bundle of contradiction and irony, but its, its historic importance and its intellectual fascination are undoubted, and it certainly keeps me interested. When addressing the final part of the lecture, the question of the relevance of Lenin and Leninism today, I want to begin with a brief outline of opinions on Lenin and Leninism in Russia. According to an opinion poll conducted in Russia by the respected Levada Center in early 2016, 53% of respondents considered that, overall, Lenin had played a positive role in Russian history. So more than half of respondents considered that Lenin had played a positive role in Russian history, although the reasons are not entirely clear. Roughly the same percentage, 56%, regretted the collapse of the Soviet Union. When we look at the approach of Russia's political elite to the centenary of 1917, and to Lenin specifically, then we see a complex and not entirely coherent message. Although what is striking is hostility to the very idea of revolution. The message from President Putin and the Russian government is that social divisions that can result in and arise from revolutions could prove fatal for Russia, that Russia has had enough of revolution through its history, and that what Russia needs is a strong state. There is recognition that the revolutions of 1917 were motivated by ideas of justice, but for the most part, Russia's political leaders wanted to stress the supposed um, uh, continuity of a strong state through Russian history. And this has led to an interesting ambiguity towards Lenin amongst the political elite. On the one hand, Leninism as an ideology of revolution is firmly associated with social division, with class struggle, with undermining and smashing existing states. Precisely what Russia's political elite is opposed to. And I think this partly explains Russian foreign policy. Putin last year criticized Lenin for placing a bomb under the Russian state by supporting a policy of national autonomy with the right to leave within the structure of the USSR. In fact, Putin had misinterpreted um, Lenin's nationalities policy, but that's a slightly different matter. On the other hand, the imperial Russian state collapsed of its own accord in 1917, nothing to do with Lenin and the Bolsheviks. But Lenin and the Bolsheviks restored a state, restored a Russian state, albeit within the guise of a Soviet Union, and a state that encompassed much of the former Russian Empire. In other words, what I'm saying is that for Russia's political elite, Leninism was destructive, and there was little abuse in the substance of Leninist thought, but it did serve a useful role nonetheless in helping to restore, to reconstitute a strong Russian state. And so, what can we say about Lenin and Leninism from our perspective 100 years later? Is there any use for Leninism in our own time? In the parts of the world that we are most exposed to, recent years have witnessed something like a crisis in liberal democracy. The politics of consensus around parties at the centre have been undermined. The shortcomings of globalised neoliberal capitalism have been demonstrated by the financial crash at the end of the last decade. And we know all about that here in Ireland. They've also been demonstrated by recent events such as Brexit. It's no wonder that intellectuals on the far left have responded to the centenary of 1917 by suggesting that the political left needs to recapture the spirit of 1917 and that both re revolution and Leninism, both the revolution of 1917 and Leninism, should be considered unfinished. <coughs> Even before the crash of 2008, 
some far-left intellectuals were suggesting the benefits of reloading many. One book with that title, Reloading, Lenin Reloaded Toward a Politics of Truth. And the idea is not simply to repeat Leninism, but to be inspired by it when confronting the political realities of today. And in fact, in 2017, it has become almost commonplace to point to Lenin's relevance, and not just on the political left. In fact, Late last year, the Economist magazine columnist Adrian Woldridge wrote an article where he bemoaned the fact that, as he put it, bolshiness is back. But I think there are problems with the ways in which Lenin's relevance is being discussed. The subtitle of this article reads, and you have extraordinary eyesight if you can read it, the similarities to the world that produced the Russian Revolution are too close for comfort. Victor Sebastian, if we return to Victor Sebastian, the author of the most recent book in English on Lenin, Sebastian tells us, and I quote, Lenin would very probably have regarded the war of 2017 as being on the cusp of a revolutionary moment. In reality, there are few indicators today that revolutions are imminent in economically advanced parts of the world, at least not anti-capitalist revolutions, and at least that's my perception. A more accurate observation, I think, is to be found in this year's volume of the British Socialist Register. And I quote, Our times cry out for the need to transcend capitalist oppression, exploitation and degradation. But revolution's current capacities and claims associated with 1917 have seldom been held in disregard by so many, including a considerable section of the ostensible left. What is crucial for understanding 1917 is that first, the context was a devastating and total war, a war that resulted in state failure and the collapse of four major European empires, not just the Russian Empire. And second, Russia, at the beginning of 1917, was ruled by an essentially uncompromising autocrat. In short, economically advanced parts of the world today and Russia are very different to what they were in 1917. But the main problem that I see with the notion of Leninism's relevance is how this is presented by some intellectuals of the far left. And some of the the left intellectuals that I've been reading typically acknowledge that there are problems with Leninism's legacy and that Lenin made mistakes. However, there is often a lack of clarity about those mistakes in, in 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 the works of the people that I read. There is often a lack of clarity regarding what it is about Leninism that ought to be revived. And there is often an inability to acknowledge that the major problems in Soviet history were effectively put in place under the leadership of Lenin, Trotsky and others. In other words, it didn't just go sour when Stalin came to power. If we adopt a properly historical understanding of Leninism and see what it looked like in practice, I think the evidence is, quite simply, that Leninism does not work as an approach to creating a better world, and that it shouldn't be tried again. I think the left ought largely to remove itself from the long shadow of Leninism, and from the consequences of the Russian Revolution, however inspirational the hopes and the optimism of 1917. But I'm not going to end at that point. I don't want you to think that I'm some sort of... um, conservative, because I'm not. Um, Nonetheless, although I think much of the substance of Leninism is either not relevant or not desirable today, and sorry, no offence to any conservatives in the room. So, although I think much of the substance of Leninism is either not relevant or not desirable today, I think our approach to Leninism ought to be more complicated than that. In our own age of politics, as the realm of cynicism, soundbites, and distrust, when our mainstream media often struggle to conceptualise political issues more deeply than the short-term, the trivial and the personal. I think there are a lot of things to be learned from Leninism. On a more personal note, the years that I have spent reading Lenin have been central to my political awareness, as well as to my development as a historian. 
I've learned especially the importance of looking beneath the surface of the political to see deeper structures of meaning and power at play. I have admired Lenin's steadfast convictions and his passionate advocacy of a better world, however misconceived. In particular, I have admired his principled opposition to the First World War, at a time when socialists all too easily resorted to support for their own national war efforts. And our world today continues to be riven by problems of massive inequalities, excessive corporate power and corruption, military strength and warfare, and the more recently prominent problems of environmental sustainability. Leninism was an ideology of partisanship and sectarianism, of absolute conviction in what it took to be truth, and of the importance of principled and steadfast political leadership. Soviet history teaches us the potential dangers of all of that. But Soviet history should not necessarily invalidate a politics of principled conviction, even of truth. In fact, I think that is needed today as much as a century ago, and perhaps even more. And so, in this lecture, what I've tried to do is bring out the complexities and the contradictions of Lenin and Leninism, and I'd like to conclude on a suitable note. To the question, is Leninism relevant today? My answer is, not really. But yes, actually it is. Thank you very much.